1982, an American supernatural horror film by Steven Spielberg entered the collective consciousness of the world. A movie including real human skeletons, an exorcism, and real-life tragedy. Today on The Secret Sits, we are going to explore the Poltergeist movie curse. What is seen as an unusually large number of deaths have occurred amongst the former cast of the Poltergeist trilogy. This occurrence has given rise to the rumor the productions were in some way cursed due to the nature of the films themselves. As if the evil spirits conjured in the make-believe world of the cinema have since reached out into the real world to claim what they might see as their rightful victims. A poltergeist in folklore is a noisy and destructive, but usually mischievous and not malicious, ghost held to be responsible for unexplained noises and movement of objects within a home. It is hypothesized poltergeists are drawn to homes in which there are prepubescent children, especially females. Three horror films based on this form of lore comprise the Poltergeist trilogy. First off, I want to say, spoiler alert, although I'm not sure you can really spoil a 38-year-old film. But if you have not seen it by now, you need to get on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever you need to do to see this movie tonight. And hey, if you have seen it, but it's just been a while, maybe tonight you can do some old-school vintage horror movie watching. So let's talk about the movie. Craig T. Nelson who you may know as Mr. Incredible from the Disney Pixar movie The Incredibles, stars as Steve Freeling, the main protagonist who lives with his wife, Diane, and their three children, Dana, Robbie, and Carol Ann, in Southern California where he sells houses for the company that built their new neighborhood. It starts with just a few odd occurrences such as broken dishes or furniture moving around by themselves. However, a tree comes alive and takes Robbie through his bedroom window, and Carol Ann is abducted by ghosts. Realizing that something evil haunts his home, Steve calls in a team of parapsychologists, led by Dr. Leash, to investigate, hoping to get Carol Ann back so he can remove his family from this house before it's too late. Although coincidence is much more a likely explanation than a curse, there have been four deaths among the cast of this set of films. Dominique Dunn played Dana Freeling, Heather O'Rourke played Carol Ann Freeling, Will Sampson played Taylor, a good spirit, and Julian Beck played Kane, an evil spirit. Though two of the deaths were foreseeable, expected even, two others were not. It's the combination of the two unexpected deaths that lie at the heart of every rumor about the poltergeist curse. I want to start exploring the poltergeist curse by looking at actress Dominic Dunn. Dunn's first role was in 1979 television film Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. 
she then got supporting roles in episodes of popular 1980s television series such as Lou Grant, Family, Heart to Heart, and Fame. Dunn also had a reoccurring role on the comedy-drama television series Breaking Away and appeared in several other television films. In 1981, she was cast in her first feature film, Poltergeist. Dunn portrayed Dana Freeling, the teenaged daughter of a couple whose family is terrorized by malevolent ghosts. This was her only theatrical film appearance before her death. After Poltergeist, she appeared in the final season premiere episode of Chips and the 1982 television film The Shadow Riders, starring Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. Shortly before her death, Dunn was cast as Robin Maxwell in the mini-series V. She died during the filming, and her role was recast with actress Blair Tefkin. According to the DVD director's commentary by series creator Kenneth Johnson, Dunn appears in the scene in which the Maxwells and others watch the L.A. mothership glide in on the day the visitors first arrive. Her back is all that is seen, but the miniseries is dedicated to her memory. Dunn appeared posthumously in the Hill Street Blues episode Requiem for a Hairbag, which aired on November 18, 1982, two weeks after her death. She played a teenaged mother who was a victim of parental abuse and gives up her baby for adoption out of fear of repeating what her parents had done to her. The episode was dedicated to her in memoriam in the opening credits. Dunn met John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef at the restaurant Ma Mason, at a party in 1981. After a few weeks of dating, they moved into a one-bedroom house on Wrangley Avenue in West Hollywood together. The relationship quickly deteriorated because of Sweeney's possessiveness and jealousy. The couple fought frequently, and Sweeney began physically abusing Dunn. According to one account, he yanked out handfuls of her hair by the roots during an argument on August 27, 1982. She fled to her mother's house, where Sweeney showed up and began banging on the door and windows, demanding to be let in. Dunn's mother told him to leave and threatened to call the police. A few days later, Dunn returned to their home and continued their relationship. During another argument at their home on September 26, 1982, Sweeney grabbed Dunn by the throat, threw her on the ground, and began to strangle her. A friend who was staying with the couple heard loud gagging sounds and ran into the bedroom where Dunn was being attacked. Dunn told the friend that Sweeney had tried to kill her, but Sweeney denied the claim and told Dunn to come back to bed. She pretended to comply but snuck out of the bathroom window instead. When Sweeney heard Dunn start the engine of her car, he ran out and jumped on the car's hood. Dunn stopped the car long enough for Sweeney to jump off the hood, and then she drove away. For the next few days, she stayed with her mother and at homes of her friends. She later called Sweeney and ended the relationship. After he moved out, she had the locks changed and moved back 
into the Wrangley Avenue home. On October 30th, 1982, a few weeks after Sweeney and Dunn had broken up, Dunn was at her West Hollywood home rehearsing for the miniseries V with actor David Packer. While she was speaking to a female friend on the phone, Sweeney had the operator break into the conversation. (laughs) Man, do you remember the 80s when a real-life operator could just do an emergency break into your phone line in the middle of a conversation? Wow. Dunn told her, Oh God, it's Sweeney. Let me get him off the phone. Ten minutes later, Sweeney showed up at Dunn's home. After speaking to him through the locked door, Dunn agreed to speak to him on the porch, while Packer remained inside. Outside, the two began to argue. Packer later said he heard smacking sounds, two screams, and a thud. He called the police, but was told that Dunn's home was out of their jurisdiction. Packer then phoned a friend and told him that if he was found dead, John Sweeney was the killer. Packer left the home through the back entrance, approached the driveway, and saw Sweeney in some nearby bushes kneeling over Dunn. Sweeney told Packer to call the police, and when police arrived, Sweeney met them at the driveway with his hands in the air and stated, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. Sweeney later testified that he and Dunn had argued, but he could not remember what happened after the exchange. He claimed he could only recall being on top of her with his hands around her neck. Dunn was transported to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where she was placed on life support, but she never regained consciousness. Over the following days, doctors performed brain scans that showed she had no brain activity due to oxygen deprivation. On November 4th, her parents consented to have her removed from life support. At the request of her mother, Dunn's kidneys and heart were donated to transplant recipients. On September 21st, 1983, after eight days of deliberation, the jury acquitted John Sweeney of second-degree murder, but found him guilty of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. He was also convicted of misdemeanor assault for the altercation with Dunn that had occurred on September 26, 1982. On November 7th, Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison for manslaughter, the maximum sentence he could receive, plus an additional six months for the assault charge. He actually served three and a half years in prison and was released. He moved to the Pacific Northwest and changed his name to John Mara and continued being a chef. So Dominic Dunn seemed to be the starting point for the curse manifesting itself out in the real world. But it wasn't going to stop there. And the curse's next victim shocked everyone and led the name Heather O'Rourke to become part of Hollywood rumor and lore that no one would soon forget. Heather Michelle O'Rourke was born on December 27, 1975, in San Diego, to Kathleen and Michael O'Rourke. Her mother worked as a seamstress, and her father was a carpenter. She had an older sister, 
Tammy O'Rourke, also an actress. Her parents divorced in 1981, and O'Rourke's mother married part-time truck driver Jim Peel in 1984, while they were living in a trailer park in Anaheim, California. Heather's success in Hollywood later allowed the family to purchase a home in Big Bear Lake, California. Between acting jobs, O'Rourke attended Big Bear Elementary School, where she was president of her fifth grade class. At the time of her death, their family was living in Lakeside, California, a suburb of San Diego. In a contemporary interview with American Premier Magazine, producer Steven Spielberg explained that he was looking for a beautiful four-year-old child, every mother's dream, for the lead in his horror film, Poltergeist. While eating in the MGM studio commissary, Spielberg saw five-year-old O'Rourke having lunch with her mother while her older sister Tammy was shooting Pennies from Heaven. After his lunch, Spielberg approached the family and offered O'Rourke the poltergeist role. She was signed the next day, beating Drew Barrymore, who was also up for the role. O'Rourke's delivery of the lines in the first film and in the second film placed her in the collective pop culture consciousness of the United States. They're here is ranked number 69 on the American Film Institute's list of 100 movie quotes. And you know it. I think even if you haven't seen this movie, you have heard someone in your life make the they're here reference in a time of spookiness. After her work in Poltergeist, O'Rourke secured several television and television movie roles. In 1983, she starred as herself alongside Maury Amsterdam and well-known Walt Disney animated characters in an hour-long television special, Believe You Can and You Can. She also appeared in Chips, Webster, The New Leave It to Beaver, Our House, and had a reoccurring role on Happy Days as Heather Feister. In early 1987, O'Rourke became ill with Crohn's disease. She was prescribed cortisone injections to treat the disease during the time she was filming Poltergeist 3. The steroidal injections resulted in facial swelling of her cheeks, which O'Rourke's mother said she was very self-conscious about. On January 31, 1988, O'Rourke began exhibiting flu-like symptoms. The following morning, she collapsed in her home and was rushed to the community hospital in El Cajon. En route, she suffered cardiac arrest, but paramedics were able to restart her heart at 9.25 a.m. She was subsequently flown to the Children's Hospital of San Diego, where it was discovered she had intestinal stenosis, and she went into emergency surgery. She survived the surgery, but suffered another cardiac arrest while in the recovery room. Doctors performed CPR for over 30 minutes, but finally, O'Rourke was pronounced dead at 2.43 p.m. that afternoon. O'Rourke's cause of death was ruled congenital stenosis of the intestine, complicated by septic shock. 
Dr. Daniel Hollander, the head of gastroenterology at the University of California Irvine Medical Center, stated that her work's death was distinctly unusual, as she lacked the prior symptoms of the bowel defect. However, Dr. Hollander further stated that it was possible for congenital bowel narrowing to cause sudden death without symptoms if an infection caused the bowels to rupture. A private funeral was held for her work on February 5, 1988, in Los Angeles. She was entombed at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery. In the Poltergeist trilogy, O'Rourke played Carol Ann Freeling, a young suburban girl who becomes the conduit and target for supernatural entities. The New York Times noted that she had played the key role in the films and commented, with her wide eyes, long blonde hair, and soft voice, she was so striking that the sequel played off her presence. During the production of the original Poltergeist, Spielberg twice accommodated the child actress when frightened. When scared by performing a particular stunt, Spielberg replaced O'Rourke with a stunt double wearing a blonde wig, and when disturbed by the portrayal of child abuse, Spielberg did not require her to perform the take a second time. For her work in Poltergeist, O'Rourke earned between $35,000 and $100,000 U.S. dollars. O'Rourke played the role in all three films. Of course, such an unexpected death would fuel rumors, especially when considered in conjunction with Dominic Dunn's murder only six years earlier. O'Rourke had appeared in all three Poltergeist movies. Poltergeist 3 had yet to be released at the time of O'Rourke's death, leading to rumors that she had expired during shooting, and a double was used to complete the picture in her place. O'Rourke's family and agent said at the time of her death, her scenes for Poltergeist 3 had been completed several months earlier, back in June of 1987. But writer-director Gary Sherman has maintained filming a Poltergeist 3 had not yet finished when O'Rourke died, necessitating script changes to complete the film in her absence. And I remember this specific scene where this rumor comes from. Carol Ann is in a high-rise building, and the parental figures, who are not her parents from the first two films, but somehow maybe they were related to her, I can't really remember. Well, they come to the room she is in on a window washer lift from outside the building. There is a scene played by Heather O'Rourke, but then for the last five minutes of the film, the adult actress is holding what appears to be Heather, but mysteriously, the scene is shot very specifically to never show Carol Ann or Heather O'Rourke's face, leading to the rumors that this may have been a reshoot after Heather had passed away. The other two deaths connected with Poltergeist were of seasoned actors well into their careers, both suffering from serious illnesses that would in time take their lives. Because their deaths were not unexpected, only rarely is either mentioned in connection with the poltergeist curse. Julian Beck played the evil spirit Cain in the 1986 Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. 
And let me tell you this, as a kid, I was a horror movie nut. My jam was Fangora magazine, and my bedroom walls were plastered with Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees photos. But Kane from Poltergeist 2 was one of the scariest characters ever created in a movie. Beck died of stomach cancer on September 14, 1985, at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, seven months before the film's May 1986 release. Unlike O'Rourke's death, his was not unexpected, as he had been battling with cancer for over 18 months. Will Sampson, the 53-year-old Native American actor who portrayed the good spirit Taylor in Poltergeist II, died in a Houston hospital on June 3, 1987, about one year after the film's release. Sampson had received a heart-lung transplant six weeks earlier, and the cause of his death was ascribed to severe preoperative malnutrition and post-operative kidney failure and fungal infection. It has been said that he knew his chances for survival were small due to his weakened condition prior to surgery. Like Beck, Samson appeared in only one film in the series, Poltergeist II, released in May 1986. He was best known for his portrayal of the Native American psychiatric patient who feigned muteness in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This house is clean. Zelda Rubinstein filled the part of seer Tangina Behrens, also one of the most memorable characters from this film series, and Zelda is also one of the most iconic and recognizable voices in all of Hollywood. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage, so much betrayal. I've never sensed anything like it. Zelda played Tangina in all three Poltergeist films and reprised the role in the spin-off television series Poltergeist The Legacy. She died in 2010 from natural causes at the age of 76, hardly the type of death one associates with a curse that supposedly causes unexpected and premature demises. In a popular form of this rumor, one of the child actors is said to have come to an untimely end at the end of the making of each film. One murdered, one in a car accident, and one of a mysterious disease. Though it is true actresses Dominic Dunn and Heather O'Rourke have since passed away, Oliver Robbins, the child actor who played their character's brother, Robbie Freeling, in the first two films, is still with us. No child actor from the Poltergeist series was killed in a car crash or died just after Poltergeist II was completed. An extreme version of the curse rumor asserts that everyone who appeared in these movies is now dead, which we know is just not true. So what do you think? Are there secrets hidden in this story? Do you believe in the poltergeist curse? 
Let us know what you think by contacting us on our social media. And don't forget to leave a rating and review so we can continue bringing you more fascinating secrets to reveal and discuss. If you have suggestions on stories that you believe have hidden secrets, email me your ideas at thesecretsitspodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Sits is hosted by me, John Dodson. Audio engineering by Gabriel Dodson. Original artwork provided by Tony Lay.